if a church fails to fails to listen to black voices and stories and consider their experience and examine their own hearts um, and the ways in which they've defaulted to privilege, that's not to say they can't do good things in the community, but it is to say whatever good things they're doing, there's a lot of organizations doing good things. You know what I mean? And, and look, the NFL just donated millions of dollars to the NAACP, I think, or, or some, some organizations, but it's like, yeah, you know what would be really great if you actually like reinstated Kaepernick and paid him for time lost, like, because you guys screwed him. Like, it's like, it doesn't matter to me that you guys made this donation. Like, that's cool. That's going to help that organization. But ultimately, it, it, it doesn't seem genuine. And I would also say, like, you can be doing all this great work in your community, maybe to combat homelessness or to have a food pantry or, you know, like all these other things, clothing drives. And, and I'm, I don't want to discredit that work because there's great people doing that work. But I would say, what makes you stand for that matter of justice within your community and ignore this one especially when the social consciousness is so awake to this like why are you denying this and i would say if if you're active in matters of justice in those ways it would seem even more like incongruent that you wouldn't even consider this as, a, as an act of justice self-obsessed with a license to kill in the land of the vipers and shells who think that the piety is real while the headmen are firing her will I hold my breath and I try to be still Faint heartbeats, only life that I feel A cheap imitation of life that's real Truth is I die to be healed I keep faint praise on the tip of my tongue The blade designed to kill Hi there, this is Seth. You're listening to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm glad you're here. And I'm sure you saw the title of the episode. And so I just want to talk about that a bit. Divorce yourself from any political attachments that you might have with the word defund as it relates to police or anything else. Because I think if you give it a fair shake, what you'll hear Justin talk about here in a bit matters. But I just want to say a few things quickly. The church as an institution, I think, is currently two sides of one coin. And it probably always has been, and there's probably more than one coin. But I just want to make the metaphor as simple as I possibly can for myself. But I just constantly wonder what damage we're doing to the witness of the church, to use a church word, when we stand for things that I don't think the gospel would allow or should allow. When I meditate on like Christ's words and when I pray, when I do all that, I get so convicted with the little bit of effort that it appears like in the church that many of us call home often, the voice that we use for oppression. I just get convicted that we're not using our voice and our influence to help fight oppression. When I think about Jesus, that is not his ministry. It was subversive. It was overtly political. It was very smart. And it was full with compassion, love, and grace a newfound understanding for those that didn't fit into the mold of what people thought was acceptable behavior or acceptable culture or acceptable religious practice. We still do it. I know it's been a while since I had one of these little monologues, if you will, but I'm just so charged up about this topic. There's a gentleman, Pastor Justin Douglas, that made a website that plays on that word of defund. And so while many of us get angry about defunding the police and while many of us refuse to actually dig in and see what that actually means, uh, Justin has basically said, well, what if we defund the church? 
what you're going to hear in this conversation is a conversation about what the church's role is and why if the church is not doing that should we give our resources to that church i don't think justin's arguing though for defunding the whole church just for making sure that we fund churches that seem to be doing work for the marginalized for the oppressed for the least of these it's going to convict you i know it convicted me but i look forward to it here we go Justin Douglas, I'm not going to say pastor, because you're a pastor all the time, and you're not tonight, at least not right now, because a lot of reasons. But welcome to the show, man. Thanks for saying yes for coming on, and thanks for accepting a random friend request from a normal, random person on the internet. So, yeah, I'm... I do it all the time. It's interesting. Sometimes, sometimes you never know, but, uh, I thought about asking you for money. I thought about asking you for money. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) Well, good. Well, so I would imagine most people listening may or may not be um, familiar with you. If, if it's, if it's someone that's, yeah. Yeah. So what would you want people to know about you? Oh man, that's interesting. Oh, well, I have a wife and three kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Jesus. I love the church. Um, I'm a pastor. And ultimately, like uh, right now, one of the things I'm really championing is belonging within the church. And I think um, particular, some groups have have struggled to find belonging within the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in my experience, um, that can be, um, you know, anywhere from people of color to LGBT community to it's just I, I would say it this way. The church has struggled to listen well to to groups that are on the fringes. And I have a huge passion for helping people learn to listen and then learn to like adapt the church. Uh, and, and, you know, what better time than right now to adapt? I mean, everybody's having to adapt and change right now and systems are being you know broken up. So that's kind of something that I'm passionate about. I did a TEDx talk uh, titled beyond boundaries, which is something that I kind of talked about, about pushing the church's boundaries outside of kind of what we've, what we've been. Uh, it was, I don't know if you're familiar with centered set and bounded set, but it was kind of using that terminology. And then I launched a podcast called Beyond Boundaries. So those are some mm. opportunities if people want to know more about, you know, kind of that, those ideas. But ultimately, um, that's something I'm passionate about. And then as, as I started engaging more in the recent, you know, month following George Floyd, um, I was having a lot of talks with pastors and just seeing the inaction from the church um, amid, you know, the cultural consciousness just waking up. Um, and, uh, and I had had a moment back when I lived in Boston in 2008. Uh, I mean, I don't know how deep we want to go right away. Obviously you asked the the question, but, uh, but, but (laughs) yeah, I'll I'll just say this. Um, and we can go deeper into it, but I grew up in rural Indiana for the most part. Uh, I I was born in Palm Springs, lived there till I was eight and then, um, spent the rest of my childhood and young, you know, young, young adolescence in, in Indiana and grew up on a farm, you know, heard my grandpa say the N word for the first time I heard it. Um, and, and, you know, and with a hard R, you know, like, uh, like it was, I, I grew up around a, a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, and uh, I absorbed a lot of that. And then I went to a school, a college that really didn't challenge that. I went to Liberty University. Um, while there were a lot of great things for me at Liberty, there was also a lot of negative or even things that were reinforced uh, in my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I went and I did community organizing in Boston. And I lived in a community that was 97% uh, either Black or Dominican American. And uh, that changed a lot of my opinion on people of color uh, because I got to be in relationship with them. Um, I was the minority. Um, and I began to realize a lot of the stereotypes that I had been handed were coming from a place of ignorance. Mm. And, um, and so I feel this like calling of saying like, if I had never had that moment, I could very well be in the group of people right now that are pastors that are kind of, I guess you could say playing it safe um, or, or at the very least just being like, we don't want to be political. That's not who we are. Um, but I've, I realized there's a deeper thing happening here, I think, because of that experience and then the growth after that experience. Certainly, it wasn't just an experience I had. It's, it, it kind of launched me on to beginning to look at my bookshelf and realize I was reading only white authors, begin to realize how much of my history that I had been taught was really not a very well-rounded history of, of America. If anything, it was whitewashed and, and beginning to just listen to different voices, absorb different information. And so when all this happened with George Floyd... And I saw the inaction in the church. And, and when I say inaction in the church, I want to be clear, predominantly the white evangelical church. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think there's a lot of action by church right now. So I, I just want to be clear. If you're listening to this and your church is doing a lot of great stuff, that's awesome. But I would say for the most part, the white evangelical church is, is still kind of playing it safe. We'll put a statement out maybe and say some things, but we're not yeah. really act, acting, um, doing things. And so yeah. I started a I started a project, uh, ran it by a bunch of friends of mine and uh, who are people of color and just kind of was like, what do you think about this? And, and some other friends of mine. And, uh, and I launched it called Defund the Church, um, just because that language is very popular right now. And it's very polarizing. And I thought, you know, I, I'm not trying to be a shock jock, but I also think like there is something jarring about that statement that hopefully gets people's attention and lets people know, like, one, one of the things that people tend to think about when it comes to this conversation is, I don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole because people will leave the church. If I say this, the first, the first Sunday I said, black lives matter from the pulpit. We had people leave. Mm. Um, and I'm in a fairly, I want to say progressive church, but I would say like, we're, we're, we're an open-minded community. Um, and so uh, that was, there was a cost to saying that there was a cost to elevating the, the realities of, of what people of color experience in America. And I know that pastors are thinking that way. They're thinking economically. It's not a theological move. It's an economic move. And yeah, so keep the lights on. For, for, for me, I'm like, let's put the pressure on the other side. Cause there are people that I think are actually walking away from the church because the church isn't talking about this. We're missing opportunities on the other side of this too. They're just not as vocal when they walk away or you're just missing opportunities. And there's a lot of people who would walk into a church who have seen such inaction from the church for so long on social issues that they've just decided to walk away. So, so that's a little bit of what is happening of late. Um, and uh, I can get into any of that <laughs> deeper that you want, but that's a, that, that's a little bit of a, a couple follow-up questions. Um, yeah. And then I didn't know this until um, so full disclosure um, I intentionally did not watch the entire video that you have at defund the church Good. until yeah, yeah. about two hours ago. Oh, cool. Cool. And then I sent it to a couple friends of mine, some of which have been pastors. Some are pastors. Some, um, are in other ministries of different things. And then a couple of them, three actually said, Hey, can we talk real quick? And then just <laughs> called me. So, um, but before we get there, um, Palm Springs, Indiana, what is the ratio of, of Palm Springs? Like actual uh, palms, zero. Oh, I, I, I have no idea. Palms? Uh, I, 
you mean you mean palm tree? trees? Yeah, the, yeah, 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 absolutely. Sure, yeah, yeah. I've been back, so like, yeah. There's there's palm trees everywhere out there in Indiana. Yeah, and no, not in Indiana. Palm Springs, California. Oh, I thought. Okay. So sorry, sorry, sorry. Just no, no, no. So I always say it this way. I was I was born in in Palm Springs, California. Sorry, mm. maybe I said that wrong. I was born in Palm Springs, <laughs> California. Lived there till I was eight, and gotcha. then I moved to Indiana. Spent. I always say my parents did the reverse Beverly Hillbillies because. Yeah. I left Palm Springs and then grew up on a farm in Indiana. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. Well, when I heard sorry it, I was I... like, why would it be named whatever? It doesn't matter. Um, so Palm Springs, Indiana, that's, we should, we should like start a city called Palm Springs, Indiana. That'd do be it, great. do it. And, and, and try to plant a palm in a greenhouse. Yeah. 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 So, um, so just a bit in common, when you said you went to Liberty, I really related to that. I also went to Liberty. When were you, Did you really? yeah. When were you there? I was there from 2002 to 2006. We were there at the same time. So I graduated uh, in 05. In 05? I should have graduated in 04, but I was really delinquent with going to bio lab (laughs) because it's stupid. Uh, I wasn't learning anything. And then it wasn't until I met my wife, who's now the woman. What what was your major? Communications. Yeah. Communications. So so you took a lot of the main like electives that I would take. So you, you obviously know like Elmer Towns. Uh, I, I was in one class with Elmer Towns. Okay. I'm trying to think of who else you would have had. Did you, who did you take like your, uh, your ethics class with? Who, what was it? Uh, oh, you uh, have to give me some names. Um, ooh. let's see. Danny Lovett I'm sure was a we, good class. Danny Lovett. Yep. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I'm trying to think of people we would have had together. That's I great. was trying to think of the guy that taught the bio class the other day. It's like Spong, Spock. It's an yeah, S. Uh, yeah. Spong, I, I can't think of his name. I think it is like Spong or something like that. It's yeah. Weird. I had Dr. I had Dr. Lee Gibson for uh mm-hmm. for a like um ethics class that I remember. That was yeah. like a general elective that everybody had to take. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good Favorite. old times at Liberty. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So it's wild. Yeah, I, well, yeah. And and I also uh, agree with what you said about Liberty in your video. But I'm curious. So um that's <laughs> that's got a little bit of shade from some of my friends though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I tell people I'm thankful for my time at Liberty. Um, some of my best friends have been people that I met in Liberty. Uh, and I yeah. mean, I talked with two of them today and we, you know, they're, they're, they're my closest friends, but I could never go back there. Like I've had people all the time at church like, would you go back to Liberty? I'm like, not in a heartbeat, not ever. I can't, I can't go. Um, I don't even like to drive through it. I feel like one of the things I've been doing on my journey is trying to well, I mean, we say this all the time, like when you read a book or something like chew the fruit, spit the seed type situation, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to even look back over my like life and say like, you know, you needed liberty in that season for, for X, Y, and Z. You don't need that now. Mm. So don't, you're not going to go back to that. Like you, you needed that in your evolution of, you know, personhood at that time. So there's a lot that liberty gave me at the time that I was there. Um, that was super beneficial, but there's also a lot they reinforced that made it harder to unlearn things that I would say, like, I wish I didn't have to take both of those things. And I, I wish I would have, you know, and so like, for me, like I used to recommend, I was a youth pastor for a while. I used to recommend students to go to Liberty and I wouldn't anymore. Um, not, not because I don't think it could be the same experience for some students, but I would just say, I, I think what I've seen from afar is that that reinforcing, unless you have some type of experience, which I'd be interested to hear even yours, not that I'm interviewing you, but like, I found that most of my Liberty friends who have actually like had some type of deconstruction moment, it's usually come because there's been some external situation they've gone through, whether that's a divorce or, 
you know, or, or a worldview shift of being in a very different environment than they've ever been in or traveling the world or, or just, um, you know, some crisis of faith or something that kind of shook them and got their attention and allowed them to see things differently. But then the, the struggle I have is so many people move forward from that experience without any questions about what, you know, without, I don't know, any investigation of what they've been taught and how yeah. they've been taught to learn. And I would also say I got my master's at Liberty as well. And I did that online. And I found that to actually be a far more life-giving experience than the on-campus professors. So like those were all farmed out professors um, that were not on campus at Liberty. So they were all like all over the country, but they were, they had to sign the Liberty Statement of Faith, but they were a lot more like open to you yeah. having a different of, difference of opinion. I remember writing a paper on Calvinism and getting like reamed by the professor, like because of what I argued for, but I was like, but I made a good argument for it. I was like, I was like, we, we can disagree, but I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm writing a paper that's making a good art, but it was against what the professor believed in undergrad. And I was like, I didn't realize I was writing to the professor. I thought I was here to write <laughs> for what, you know? So like, so in, in masters, it was a very different experience where there was a lot more freedom for your own intellect and your own belief system yeah. to kind of flourish as long as you could. So I, I guess I say that just to say like, I, I think there's good things, but I also think there's some things that, that I struggle with. And ultimately I do think the, the lack of social awareness in this particular moment, but ultimately even from the roots, the lack of reconciliation for, for, for the roots, even of Liberty, I think are going to continue to be its detriment until they get that under control. And you, again, you're seeing that currently at Liberty. Yeah. We don't have to go into my thing, but I will answer your question in brief. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've talked about it a little bit here and there. What you'll find Justin is I don't actually give a lot of my story <laughs> in the podcast. You should. Um, you well, it. yeah, I mean, <laughs> I find, so what's funny is I have people all the time, they're like, no, your stuff, we want to know more about you, but I don't find my stuff all that interesting. Though I have begun writing some of it down and who knows, 27 years from now, I'll finally be done with it or something. Who knows how long <laughs> it would take. But, uh, or if I'll ever even let, it, <laughs> let anybody see it. Uh, but no, so for me it was, so I left Texas to come. So I went from independent, regular Baptist to Liberty. So maybe went a little more liberal than what my yeah. upbringing was. Yeah. And then that was all well and good. And then I moved off campus cause I had asthma cause I can fake that, you know, I have to get off campus. <laughs> yeah. It's just funny to hear you say that. Cause I know so many people that use <laughs> random things to get off campus. I do actually stuff. have asthma, but that, that's just an excuse. Yeah. Got light medical to sign off on it. Which and by you have asthma, it means you got a doctor to tell you. I had you an have inhaler. Asthma. No. I have an inhaler. I still have it. But for me, it was leaving Liberty and joining the workforce. I came in close proximity to people that didn't believe like me and didn't think like me and really seemed to love God and had tremendous growth where I didn't have growth. And then I had a child with my wife. And that honestly uncovered emotions and a different view of the divine mm -hmm. that I didn't know I was allowed to have. And yeah. then, yeah, just a lot of things after that. Like I, I worked with someone that happens to be, uh, at the time she was lesbian, or she is still lesbian. You know what I mean? I'm saying this wrong. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. But just being in proximity with people that didn't agree like me began to make God bigger. And many of my friends that either are afraid of, I'm not going to say the word progress, just the way that I see God, they haven't intentionally put themselves in positions to be with people that aren't like them and sure. they're afraid to ask any questions and, and 
falling away from what you did believe is painful. So it is. But the questions are okay. Uh, Systematic Mm -hmm. theology is also okay. But it's really small. It's it's really small. Either way, that's just a little bit of me. (laughs) Yeah, you you and I seem to have a similar experience. I think the moment you you kind of realize the foundation you have like needs to be reassessed, like, and you've built so much on it, mm-hmm. but you're interacting with people that are like challenging all the truths of the foundation that you built. Like, mm-hmm. you're like, what is going on here? Like, I, I can't, I got to take this all down and rebuild like from the foundation. That's, that's hard. And then, and then you realize like just how important it is to just be like Jesus, like Jesus needs to be my foundation, mm-hmm. all this other stuff whether it's right or left, like, or anything in between, like, I just got to be careful to place anything and prop anything too high on that. That isn't centered on Jesus because it's probably going to be at some point needed to be, you know, taken away. So that's been my experience. And it seems like you've had a similar experience. Yeah. We'll have to have you back on or I'll be on with you or something. We'll have to talk about that again. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great conversation. Not why I brought you on though. Um, yeah, that's the downside of not scripting the questions. No, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. So you have a website, which I went on a minute ago. You still need to build us some more of that site. Like it says like, this is coming, this is coming. I'm going to put that on you. A lot of it's interactive. So like it's, the goal is to kind of see how some people use the resources and then build out from there. So Mm -hmm. like there is, there's, there's five main questions that we're asking the church. There's a guiding value. And then there's a sample letter. And that's pretty much all you're going to find on the website. It's a simple website. Um, It's mainly just a place for those things to be stored. Uh, And then the video is on the main page. Outside of that, there's really nothing there. The goal is that we would actually have testimonials in the future. And oh, we also have like some five recommended resources that you and your church could maybe consider reading Mm -hmm. together. Uh, That's one other thing we have on there, but the goal is that we would have more resources in the future, but also testimonials of people who have actually sent the letter to their churches, whether those are positive or negative testimonials, to be honest, like I would post either. Um, So uh, we know some people who have begun that, begun that conversation with their church. I actually just texted with somebody who has a meeting with one of their pastors tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, so there's definitely some, some, some movement happening. I think some people are also like not willing to send things to their church about it. Even yeah. if they're our advocates, they're kind of like, you know, um, you know, it, it's, it's a hard thing. It's, it's hard to, you know, I frame it as nonviolent direct action in the, in, in the tradition of Dr. King. Yeah. Um, that's not for everybody. And I recognize that. And yeah. I, I think, I think my goal here was to say, Hey, if you are fed up, don't just walk away like actually try to have a conversation before you do. You never know what progress you might make. Um, and maybe you are committed to staying and this is something you're passionate about seeing the church um, be active in. And so what does it look like to actually take some of these resources that I've already collected yeah. and create, created with other, you know, voices to, to actually like ask these questions and challenge your leaders with them. And, and I think they're fair questions. I, I don't, you know, while defund the church is very flagrant and I get that, I don't think the questions themselves or the posture in which we even write the letter is argumentative or, you know, negatively challenging. It's certainly challenging, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not challenging in the way of like, of like do this or else. Like every church is starting from a different place. And so that's what makes this challenging for me is like, I want to see churches take steps and take action 
but I can't determine what action, you know, some churches, if they get up and say black lives matter, they're going to be closing their doors in two weeks. Like that's just the reality of the situation of where they're at. Um, because that's how just quite honestly, uh, racist their communities are. I don't know how else to say it any other yeah. way. Like they, 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 they can't even say that from the stage. So they're going to have to actually do a lot, a lot more groundwork and education work prior to any action or any statements that they make. Right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to like give a one size fits all. So that that's actually why the, the, the website might seem a little bit generic to some people because I want it to kind of be generic. I don't want a one size fits all. Like every church needs to do this because some churches need to be doing more and some churches need to be just take every church needs to be taking the next step that they can take. So I want to dial it back. So my first yeah. thought when I read defund the church is so as one that has done a bit of work understanding, so I've been really intentional to, to say very little on social media or sure. really outside of my close friend group, um, just because I feel like I don't know enough often to, to speak on on many things, but especially sure. in a conversation about race, when I understand that, um, you know, the I'm, I'm a white right-handed male and the world was built for me. Um, sure. So, yeah. yeah. And that's a concept I took from actually today's episode that released, but I think Sean is on point there. Yeah, he mm. used the analogy of the sniper in the Saving Private Ryan movie where he's like, we're left-handed, but shooting with a right-handed sniper. So he keeps having to reach across in a real mm. disjointed way just to even work the gun. And he's like, mm. that's, you know, the world is built for right-handed snipers and yeah. not one. And Sean, I'm sorry, I'm sure you'll listen and I'm not doing that right, but I, I like <laughs> I'm stealing it. I've used it a couple of <laughs> times since then. Churches are staffed by clergy that are predicated on from Liberty, Pensacola, um, all these other universities, you know, Cedarville and a bunch more that I could name. So in a conversation of defund the church, what role do you think our seminaries and our institutions that actually train the leaders of the church bear and how quickly should they begin to try to pivot to whatever that needs to look like? Because I think the two are going to have to work in unison because the seminaries are what feed the churches. They, like they, yeah. they feed the ministers. And they have to because the burnout rate is so high. So they have to, they have to restock the shelves. However, different podcast. Um, yeah, so... You, you can see how multifaceted this is, though. Mm-hmm. Like when we talk about systemic racism, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that like this isn't just a church issue. While it is a church issue because the church is ultimately going to be the place that's either going to allow those seminaries to stay status quo or to actually challenge them to produce something different. Um, But you also have the amount of white theological authors that get elevated within the church where the church rarely is elevating black voices within popular authorship or, or, you know, and and I can say this for women too, like how many, how many women are actually, in your pulpit how many black people are in your pulpit uh, black voices like it's just and again i want to be clear i'm speaking about white evangelical churches like that that that's 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 just because i i i know some churches are very intentional about that mm-hmm. um but in my experience what you're what you're exposing here is just one more facet of the reality and i would say you know in in the video, I reference Bob Jones and I reference Liberty University as two highly influential um, for their time and place. Their leaders, especially, were highly influential in their theology and idea of God, especially around issues of race, primarily segregation, being handed to a large swath of pastors, and then those pastors going and taking churches. 
and that happening for generations, not just, I mean, that was class after class after class that, that happened for a long time. It wasn't like it was one year that Jerry Falwell had a bad idea or Bob Jones had a bad idea. I mean, I think I referenced in the video that Bob Jones didn't even change their policy on interracial dating till 2000. Yeah. You can literally go watch the Larry King interview where Bob Jones announces that they're changing that policy. And when he announces it, he still actually doubles down on the theology. He just says, we're changing it because we think this is just a bad witness to the world that we're getting all this bad publicity. Like that's, he pretty much is like, the, we, we don't repent of the bad theology. Mm. We're just saying we can recognize that the public is seeing this and only this, and we don't want them to see this. This isn't that important to us. He doesn't say it's a bad theology which is just shocking. Like, and, and, and so that, that school and Bob Jones, you know, being one of the first to radio had a huge influence on the church and on young pastors. Now I will say these are obviously largely conservative, you know, universities, but Liberty within the, you know, between Bob Jones and Liberty, Liberty would be progressive. You know what I mean? (laughs) But like, they still have, they still have a lot of just, I, I don't know racist roots. I mean, if you look at Liberty's, even their elementary school that's on campus, you, you remember LCA, you were, you were there, right? There. So yeah, I was there when it was like a small, when school. it was off campus yeah. yeah, and then it came on campus, right? Yep. You yeah. were there at the same time as me. So you yeah. remember they came yeah, on they campus. Bought the Erickson building there. Yeah. So, so how much do you know about LCA? Did, did you know that LCA was actually a segregation school? Like that they were a school that was built um, for the purpose of, um, when the schools in Lynchburg began to desegregate, that that Falwell launched that school mm. with the intention of white students only. Yeah, like most people don't know that. Like yeah. it's just not talked about. It's not. It was, I certainly didn't learn about it until after I left Liberty. So it's like things like that you don't just overcome with a statement. Like it's actually, in my opinion, become so much of the. I guess our it's it's learned through osmosis almost. Like we have these bad ideas that. We actually have to intentionally be like anti these bad ideas in order to uproot so much of, of what they've created within our churches. And so I think it is seminaries. I think it is schools. I think it is, you know, publishing companies that are only publishing largely white right-handed males, you know, yeah. um, uh, you know, like, and, and, and Christian radio that's largely playing white, you know, like, uh, you know, and it, you could just go on and on and on about how much we lack diversity. But ultimately, I think it starts with the church because I, th- I do think the church is where we have the power to change people's hearts and minds with the gospel and ultimately with the, with the inclusive nature of Jesus. Like, and, and so, I mean, we, we look at stories like the Good Samaritan and we look at stories like the, the, the woman at the well who's a Samaritan and we're like, wow, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And Jesus is constantly... Um, bringing the disciples along these journeys of like exposing them to these people that they've been taught their whole life to hate. And I mean, I love the story of the woman at the well, just real quick, not to become pre not, I'm not trying to go into preacher mode, but I'll just say this. Do it. We are, we are disciples of Jesus, right? We're mm-hmm. disciples of Jesus. I think it's interesting that, you know, in John four, Jesus sits down with a woman at a well, sends, sends the disciples into town to get food, which I wish we would have had a whole chapter on their experience, like walking into town, getting food and coming back because 
they had to be terrified. Mm. Like they've never interacted with Samaritans in their own land. Like everybody, the Jewish people would walk around Samaria. Uh, they would actually add a day's journey to their trip, not through Samaria. It, the, the text starts with Jesus had to walk through Samaria. He didn't have to, he chose to. And by have to, I think he felt this need, this calling to begin breaking down this barrier, knowing that it was going to be painful, knowing that it was going to challenge the, the status quo of the disciples. And then he puts them in the most uncomfortable position ever by sending them in to get food. And they bring the food back to him to find him actually talking with a Samaritan woman at a well, which has all kinds of implications, including the romantic implications, which we don't talk about, that you're at Jacob's well, this well where people have found their spouse before in the past. Mm -hmm. Like, does that make sense? And mm -hmm. Jesus is talking to a woman and a rabbi is really not supposed to be talking to a woman in this way, asking for a drink from her, which is like, whoa, what are you doing? And then like, there's just so much wrong with the story that we could go into. But the, the thing that I find interesting is the disciples give him food and he's like, I'm not hungry. And you're just like, what? You sent us into town to get food, to interact with these Samaritans who could kill us. And you're not hungry. And it's like, because it wasn't about the food. Mm. It was about the experience of you guys having to go be uncomfortable because you've been taught to hate this group. And I think we're in a season where the church needs to be uncomfortable because we're not aware of the deep hatred that we have and racism and prejudice and bias that we have toward a group of people because it's so enculturated and ingrained in us. And I think Jesus is trying to walk us into Samaria, sit down at a well and say, go on in. I'll yeah. be out here. Like, you know, and, and, and that's not to say Jesus isn't with us in it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is Jesus is trying to, I think, expose us to the hard heartedness that we have and maybe give us a different impression. I always believe if you love it, then you gotta let it be. If it comes back, then it's meant to. If it don't return, then it ain't meant to be. I always been told Despite what the evidence shows, there's more good than bad out here, and I think I'm good for you, so. You are, no, I don't want to say this. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm trying to figure out how to frame it on my mind. What What you'll find is I ramble if I don't have my, You're fine. <laughs> if I don't have my thoughts in order. <laughs> I do the same. I have a couple questions. So the first is... Mm -hmm. As people, I fully agree that people vote with their money. I mean, there's the mm. the Goya food products because he's I don't even know what he said. Or the CEO of Goya did something with the president, and people are boycotting Goya or whatever. Another. Yeah, I just saw on the you know the iPhone like gives you that news update, and I went, "Yep, yeah, don't care." Doing something, <laughs> um, so I, and I haven't really read. It. I don't. I don't. Sure, it doesn't even warrant because I don't really buy their products to begin with. It's just not the food yeah. that my family eats. Um, at least not enough to buy it. Anyway, see what happens when I ramble. So there are a lot of. Here we go. I'm gonna say this. So there are a lot of churches that are overtly racist that still do massive amounts of good in their community. Yeah. But I think they do it out of pity. That's a different. That's a different note. But sure. so as churches predominantly i think funded from a dying generation and or mine and yours generation that are a little more or are trying to be a little more intentional with where we give our resources what happens in that vacuum when you have churches with best intentions but not really the best hearts funding social programs in and around areas and they begin to be defunded and i don't think they'll necessarily be replaced with another church because uh, my generation doesn't seem overly concerned with starting another church overall uh, i'm talking about as a at a national level or even at a global level um so what happens with the defunded church and the institution that the machinery behind it um as it helps the communities that it's in as they're defunded and i want to be really clear um you'd asked me earlier some of my thoughts about you know the economy or whatever mm -hmm. 
whatever was going to happen to the church in the next 60 years will end up happening before 2025 because of the coronavirus. Like endowment funds only have so much money and they're tied to the stock market and or Fed rate. Fed rates at zero and the stock market is a dumpster fire. So the endowments are going to go away. (laughs) You know what I mean? So whatever the church, the, the lingering hospice care of the church is quickly escalated you know wow i love how you put it yeah well <laughs> i love how you you framed it as hospice care because uh yeah i mean to be honest that's that's so true um okay so there's a lot in that question mm-hmm. first i would say if a church fails to fails to listen to black voices and stories and consider their experience and examine their own hearts um, and the ways in which they've defaulted to privilege. That's not to say they can't do good things in the community, but it is to say whatever good things they're doing, there's a lot of organizations doing good things. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And and look, the NFL just donated millions of dollars to the NAACP, I think, or or some, some organizations, but it's like, yeah, you know what would be really great if you actually like reinstated Kaepernick and paid him for time lost, like because you guys screwed him. Like mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't matter to me that you guys made this donation. Like that's cool. That's going to help that organization. But ultimately, it, it it doesn't seem genuine. And I would also say like you can be doing all this great work in your community, maybe to combat homelessness or to have a food pantry or, you know, like all these other things, clothing drives. And, and I'm, I don't want to discredit that work because there's great people doing that work. But I would say, what makes you stand for that matter of justice within your community and ignore this one, especially when the social consciousness is so awake to this? Like, why are you denying this? And I would say, if, if you're active in matters of justice, in those ways, it would seem even more like incongruent that you wouldn't even consider this as an, as an act of justice. And here's, here's what I would say. I would say, I actually have a difference of opinion for you of our generation not wanting to start churches or be in churches. And the reason I say that is because I think our generation hasn't seen anybody actually like stand boldly on the principles of Jesus for mm. peacemaking, justice, legitimately standing with the marginalized in an overt way. And I, I've found that the more I've done that boldly and taken courageous steps to do that, I've connected with a lot of 35 and unders who have literally been like, I never thought I'd find a church like this, let alone in my own community. Hmm. I'm, so, I'm so there. So like we just had our first gathering um, since coronavirus, our first social distance gathering, if you will. And I think we had like 15 to 20 new people. Hmm. And a lot of them heard about it because I helped organize a Black Lives Matter rally in our community. So like, I mean, I will say, I think when pastors show up and speak boldly about matters of justice, uh, the millennial generation and, and, and generation Z are very interested in matters of justice. And I don't think they've given up on their faith. I think they've given up on the faith that the church at large, or ev- again, evangel- white evangelical church mm-hmm. has handed them. And so I actually think you might find that there's a whole group ready to be mobilized. There's just not anybody saying saying what's connecting in in their faith like what's connecting them to Jesus is these stories that are ultimately the marginalized being championed and cared for and yeah. i think yeah so so I, I will say that doesn't mean there's with any systematic change uh there's going to be hiccups along the way there's going to be 
uh, people who are probably adversely affected by that. And so I don't, I don't want to discredit that potential. And I would also say, I don't think there's, there, there's a whole nother element here that I'll, I'll say I have problems with when I say defund the church, which is that as a pastor for 15 plus years, I've had many people come to me and say, change this, or I'm taking my money elsewhere. And so there's been a lot of people who have, who have used finances in a way to hold pastors hostage over the years or church boards hostage over the years. And I have a lot of, I guess, knee jerk negative reactions to that. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is if you actually look at the process we're advocating for, we're not telling anyone to go to their boards and say, if you don't do this, we'll take this away. We're at, we're asking them to ask questions, to begin a conversation, to call them in before you call them out, which is our guiding value. And so like, well, this is an invitation to participate and, and we're not saying give your church two weeks and then walk away. We're not saying give them two years and walk away. We're not creating the timeline. You create the timeline. You mm. know your church. You know what you, know what you feel uh, needs to be done. And you know the hearts of your leaders. And, and you know how open they are or how closed they are to this conversation. So there is no prescription in that, like, you need to pull your money tomorrow. Like, um, that's not what this is talking about. I think what this is talking about is saying, we need to ask difficult questions of our leaders. Our leaders need to be hearing these questions from the people in their community who are passionate about, who, who have a passion for justice and racial reconciliation. And so if we don't mobilize to ask these questions, mm -hmm. and if we don't let them know that this is like an imperative thing for us, this isn't like, this isn't an outer ring thing. This is a gospel thing. Um, and then, then, then inaction is, is ultimately going to be likely what we find. And so I I'm trying to be very, if you, if you, if you're in your church and you're like, you know, our food pantry is the thing that is helping so many people that are in poverty in our community. I can't walk away because of that. I would say, well, then keep working with your leaders to recognize, to answer these questions more robustly than they have. Mm -hmm. And to, to, to say, will you read this book with me? I support the food pantry. I want to keep supporting it. I don't want to take my money away. Will you read Just Mercy with me? Will you read Trouble I've Seen with me? Will, like, will yeah. you actually like open these books, hear these concepts out and consider them? Because, and, and so I, I, think, I think we have to be imaginative in the way that we engage our leaders. I don't think it has to be an either or. And I don't think we have to say progress has to happen at this rate or I'm out. But ultimately, I don't want to be the determiner of that because I, would, I will say in my experience, there have been times where I've, gone in graciously and realized that what I'm working with is a system that is refusing to change. And um, not, there's not an openness to learn. Um, and, and at that point, I do think direct action and walking away is, yeah. is ultimately what needs to be done, even if that has consequences on the structure. And again, like you said, now's the time to innovate. Now's the time for these systems to to change because we are in the midst of so much change with coronavirus. Like, I guess we do. I'm not going to say fundamentally disagree there, but I get so many emails. You'd be surprised how many pastors listen to the show. Yeah, there are just things, and and it's why I named the show the name that I did. Like, there's just so many things that pastors I don't think feel comfortable giving an answer to, uh, and so there are things that people won't ask at church, um, which is why I kick so many sacred cows on this show, or at least try to. I want to pivot to a different way. So 
it, I can see this working in like a non-denominational setting or maybe even a Baptist setting where there's like autonomy of each, of the, as long as you're not part of like the Southern Baptist or whatever. But what if you're part of like an Episcopal or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or something like that where the congregational body, like they own your building. They, yeah. they control the clergy and they also in a large yeah. part control the coffers, um, even, yeah. even the funding or the defunding of. So how does a minister or a community in a type of a church organization that functionally operates differently. So you're talking about a church that's congregationally led. Um, what's the, like, or, you know, congregation yeah. gets a significant vote or control, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So those churches, I can say that working, but like, so say I want to defund the church, but I'm in the Episcopal faith and my minister doesn't have the ability to do that. Like, it's just not an option. Why doesn't your, why doesn't your minister? Have um, from what I understand, a lot of the way that those churches structurally are set up is the, the building is owned by the congregation is owned by the church, not the local church body. Like, um, even. Oh, like, oh so you're talking about the denomination. Yeah. 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 So, so I, I do, I do talk about the need for these conversations to be happening at a dom- denominational mm-hmm. level in the video as well. I do, I do, I do make it clear that like, this letter, the sample letter should be sent to your denominational leaders too, if you have mm-hmm. denominational leaders. Cause I think no matter what um, organization you're in, whether that's Southern Baptist, Baptist, you know, if you have a structure beyond your particular community, I think you should be sending the letter to them as well. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I personally think everybody in the church, whether you are a leader, a volunteer, um, any capacity of leadership that you hold within the church you should be wrestling with these questions. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think they're exclusive to our pastors, but I will say the seats that hold the most power typically are pastors and boards and um, yeah, denominational leaders. I would say though, we're in a time in history where if you're a pastor and you want to speak about the matter of justice and your denomination says no, do it anyway. Hmm. Like, that's my opinion. I mean, I, I understand that might be hard for some people to hear, but I'll say, like, um, I've lived that experience. I've done it anyway and gone against my denomination on things. And so, um, and I've gotten kicked out of my denomination for that. That's part of my history. So, like, so I'll say, like, I'm not saying that to say there's not a consequence. I'm yeah. literally, in, I'm in a house that, you know, I was in a parsonage at the time. I had to move. Like, I mean, I, I, I've lived that experience and I've dealt with the consequences of it, but I will say this. Um, if you're a pastor and, and your conscience can live with knowing that you should say something, but determining not to, because your denomination is telling you not to, then you can live with that. I couldn't. And yeah. so I would say, if, if you can't live with that, say something, I will tell you, you will find that there are a lot of people that you will connect with that you never thought you would connect with on matters of faith. I will say many friends of mine that are atheist, agnostic, not connected to God in any way, gained a certain level of respect for me in my ability to just stand up for what I I believed was right in that time. But then ultimately it's opened up all kinds of faith conversations with them Mm. because they've really never seen anybody be that authentic, even when everything was on the line. And I've actually seen multiple people come to faith through that experience. And so I would say we always tend to think when it comes to matters of us standing up for these things in a flagrant way or in a way that, that might 
be bring about negative consequences. We always tend to think of it in worst case scenarios because mm-hmm. that's just how we're built. We're built to think about the financial consequence, the social consequence, mm-hmm. um, all of that. And I think that's valuable to consider because it is going to be a toll on you in that way. But I think you should also have an imagination for recognizing that usually the people who actually step up in that kind of a bold way, Rosa Parks, for example, are the people who come out in history to be the ones who like, who are on the side of change, who are on the side of justice, who are on the side of, of doing what was right when it was hard. Don't be like the church has been throughout history where you wait till it's easy to come to the side of justice. Like that's kind of been our history, at least in the white evangelical church, is that when, like we, I say this in the video, like we watch movies like Selma and we act like we were on the right side. It's like the church was totally on the wrong side. Yeah. We celebrate that. We watch it with our communities. And it's like, look, it's a great movie. You should watch it. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But like recognize where the church was in that moment. It's a learning experience for us to recognize that like Martin Luther King Jr. is writing from a jail cell saying, it's not even the KKK that I have the biggest problem with. It's the white moderate that's a churchgoer that won't stand with us. Why mm. won't you stand with us? You believe in the same Jesus I do. I expect the KKK to operate the way they are. I expect the council, the, the white councilman to operate the way he is. But I don't expect the white pastors in the white church to be so apathetic to this movement. Yeah. And even altogether against it. And I would say when I'm talking to my, you know, black brothers and sisters who are friends of mine, they're saying the same thing today. Like, I can't believe the white church is not on the front lines right now. And so I I think it's imperative. I understand there's a lot of potential consequence, but I think we're repeating history, but it's likely because we don't recognize our place in history and that we weren't there at those times and we missed those opportunities. So I don't know. You've used the word justice a couple times. Can you give meat to that? Like when you say justice, what do you mean? Because I think people will hear that and hear what they want it to mean. So sure. when you say justice, like how are you defining that? Well, I, I would start with um, sin being a uh, culpable disturbance of shalom. I think that's Hauerwas's definition of um, sin. And so I, I think justice is what restores shalom within our world, uh, peace, justice things being things being right within the world and so i would say like when we look at um at uh the the systems of racism within our world it's really clear to see that these are not bringing shalom into our our culture into our world into our environment into our nation if you're if you're watching this and you're from the united states so i would say for example things like segregation things like redlining um and if you're not familiar with redlining, this is where school districts are, are, are clearly, are clearly. And by the way, I, I live just outside of Harrisburg, um, Harrisburg, uh, central dolphin, central dolphin East is one of the most redlined districts. Like, I don't know, probably ever, like it's crazy how incredibly, um, racial they drew these lines intentionally and, and the consequences of that. This is not bringing about Shalom in the world. Um, so even just like an education in, in, in policing, in um, incarceration, uh, in, I, mean, I could just keep going, like yeah. in the way that people are hired. If you actually like, listen to black voices, black experiences, you begin to realize um, there's all kinds of problems that are, that are not bringing about the shalom that, that, that Christ would seek within our world, but that we have an obligation to love our neighbor as ourself. And so like my desire is to love in these places. And, and so, so there's multiple descriptors of love in, 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 in uh, Corinthians and, and we're told love always protects. It's like, what does it look like? What, what's my obligation to love my neighbor, to protect my neighbor. And often we think of that. We're really quick to think of that in a militaristic way, you know, like 
in a like, I protect and that's why I have a gun. And it's mm -hmm. like, but we're not willing to think of it in, a, in an imaginative way of like, I protect by actually showing up to a, to a city council meeting and saying our policing policy is hurting people. Uh, it's, it, 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 this is not okay. Um, uh, this is a way of protecting, even just standing in and using my privilege as a white male in a way to elevate black voices. This is a way of protection too, just in that I'm, I'm elevating and platforming their voices. So I could go on and on, but yeah. ultimately I would say, I think it's about the idea of shalom. And, and look, obviously we live in a fallen world. We're not gonna have shalom exactly. We're only gonna get glimpses of it in this world. Okay, that's just the reality at this moment. But we are called to pray and to seek heaven to come to earth. Like that is our, that is, that is what, how Jesus tells us to pray, to pray um, on heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. And so, so we have this, this mandate, if you will, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And then we also have this image that, that, that God gives us of praying for heaven to come to earth. And I think if we ignore matters of justice, um, we're not living up to that mandate. Uh, so in my mind, matters of justice mean where Shalom's being disturbed, we're called to come in and seek Shalom. I like, and I like that word Shalom. I took it from, um, past guest of the show, Brandon Andrus. I hadn't really heard that word or wrestled with it much since then, but it's in a yeah. book that he wrote and I I've used it often. Shalom is a, the whole concept of Shalom is, is beautiful. it's like whole, it's like whole, it's more than peace. It's like wholeness. It's like, you know, it's this, it's this concept of when things are right. I don't know. I have mm -hmm. few times where it is the, the last time I had, it was just a few days ago, actually, where I was laying on the trampoline. We had just got done like jumping on the trampoline with my kids. And I was just laying on the trampoline, like exhausted and tired from jumping <laughs> and laying with my kids. And I looked up and we have these, like, I, they gotta be a hundred feet tall trees, like around our trampoline there uh, in the yard. And uh, I'm just laying here looking up and all these trees are like a canopy and my kids are just laughing and playing. And it's like this one moment of like, yeah, everything's right right now, even though everything's not everywhere. It just, there's this moment where the spirit, where the spirit, like just breathes something fresh on you. Like everything's good right now. And like, it's very rare that you get those moments. And I think we should, we should embrace those when we experience them. But I think we should also be advocating for and seeking those moments where we can breathe justice into someone else's experience using our influence and our voice. Yeah. Two more questions. One I'd kind of like to just, this is just projecting the future. Um, so humans are in love with power. Um, that's oh, why we don't have term limits. And oh, <laughs> so the church also is in love with power, both politically and spiritually. And so I'm, if, if we're hopeful that somehow or another, we as an institution to figure out how to seed power and elevate the voices of the oppressed, since that's usually where Jesus is, is, is with the voice of the oppressed. What does that look like for the next 10 to 15 years as the church basically fights back? Because I do think there's a huge swath of the church that's going to go, no, I, this isn't acceptable. That's not the gospel. Um, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. what do you envision that being? Because it's going to be, uh, violence not the right word. Um, tense isn't either. It's going to be extremely uncomfortable. I don't know what the right word is, um, but what do you feel like those death throws look like? I mean, the right word is probably like divisive. There we go. That's the biggest thing I get told. This is divisive, Justin. And I'm like, yeah, but the church Have is they divisive. read Jesus? Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, and look, it's easy to always like position yourself as like, I have the Jesus position and you don't. Like, and so I'm always cautious to be like, well, I'm on the side of Jesus and you're not. Like, but I will say like, Jesus is, 
is incredibly divisive at times. And he's also like has moments where he could be incredibly divisive and chooses not to be Mm -hmm. like, so I don't think it's an either or I think it's Jesus recognizes typically. I mean, at least in my, in my understanding of Jesus, there's times where he recognizes the imperative of the moment. And so one example is when Jesus, and this is the most obviously like violent or aggressive example of Jesus where he goes in and flips tables over. Most people don't understand what's happening. There is, there's an exploitation of people who are poor. People who are poor are being exploited and, and, and upcharged in essence for their sacrifices during Passover. And so there's this huge um, like need for uh, uh, to make a sacrifice because it's the way in which you're made right with God. And uh, what better time than Passover when everyone who's Jewish needs to make a sacrifice to, you know, upcharge and bring it right into the temple so they can just buy it right there and, mm. and, and, and put a tax on it, if you will, you know, to upcharge it. And Jesus sees this happening and he's like, he probably sees people literally giving their life savings because they feel like if they don't, they're not going to be made right with God. And like, that has to be very painful for him to watch. The, the, the absolute corruption of not only the marginalized, like preying on the marginalized, but even further, the corruption of the place of God, the temple. And I would say that's what we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with a church that in their apathy, whether they like to admit, whether they're willing to admit it or not, is in a lot of ways preying on black and brown people. We're not standing up and using our influence to bring about justice in our world. And I would even say in a lot of ways, we're allowing that apathy or, or even racism to go unchecked. And at the same time, we're defiling the temple. We're, we're making church not about justice, not about considering the social realities of our day. So, so I look at that and I say, you know, look, this is probably going to be a divisive season for the church, but I would say this though, have the last 20 years not been divisive for the Mm -hmm. church. Like I I don't like when a lot of people are like, don't do that because that's divisive. I'm like, I I don't really understand. What do you want me to do? Like the church, if you go on the other side, it's divisive too. Like don't act like what I'm doing is divisive, but but being apathetic and not speaking up on matters of justice isn't divisive. That's divisive too. It's just not as in your face. Yeah. And I can understand how you're, you're, you're more happy with like people being quieter. It's more palatable, but I don't, I don't think it lacks the divisiveness. I think the, the truth is <laughs> here's the truth that, that a lot of people don't want to hear. It's divisive for black and Brown people. So you don't have to experience it. Mm. Like when I talk to my black and Brown friends, that's what they say. They say the evangelical church has been silent since King, like, and before that, even, you know, um, and, and, and again, I want to be clear. That's not all white churches. If your church is predominantly white and you're doing amazing justice work, I don't want to, I don't want you to feel like I'm calling you out. I'm just more saying, you know, in general, that's been my experience. And, and, and I would also say there's a lot of uh, science that's been, you know, polls that have been done to show that tends to be the reality in white evangelical churches. And so, it's easy to be apathetic and feel like it's not divisive because the people you're dividing yourself from are people you don't actually have to be in community with. Yeah. And, and I would say I'm less interested in being in community with white people and more interested in, and, and, and so I'm not afraid in essence to, 
to disrupt my relationships with white people, including white pastors that I'm friends with, because a lot of people are watching this right now and they can't stand me. They're really upset with what I'm saying and I get it. Um, But I'm more interested in seeking justice than facilitating and continuing my relationship with white pastors and white churchgoers. And, and, and I think until we get to that place as a church, everything anyone says about matters of justice is going to be divisive or it's going to be so watered down that it's not even going to speak to the cultural moment. Like so many people are making posts that sound far more corporate as churches about unity and racial justice and all this stuff that it's like, okay, but like, what does that mean? Like, are you, are you, I, 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 that's a great statement, but like, and and look, statements matter. Statements matter. I don't want to say statements don't matter. They do matter, but it's like, what are you actually going to do? You know, the first question where we talk about like examining our hearts in this church um, and, you know, asking God to show us where we have defaulted to our privilege and preferences over what God envisions for the kingdom. It's like, are you actually going to lead your church on that journey? Because that's a hard yeah. reality to examine your hearts in the matter of racism and privilege. And like, to me, a statement that just says we're going to lead our church on that examination is far greater than like a statement of like unity and racial justice, because usually those are like a statement and then the church doesn't really do anything. And I mean, I know one pastor who said, um, after the, 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 the Sunday after George Floyd, um, to a friend of mine, you know, I have to go figure out what I'm going to say about all this, uh, what was it? All this, um, racial stuff. And in essence, it was just this, like, I have to go figure out what I'm going to say about this because people expect me to say something Yeah, like as if it's a burden. And it's like, and look, I'm not going to say as a pastor, it's not burdensome to deal with matters of justice in the sense of heavy and hard, but in a lot of ways, it just came off as this, like, Oh, I wish I didn't have to say something, but people are going to expect it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and to me, I, I sense that when a lot of churches make these statements, it comes off to me like that, like, we're not really interested in making the statement, but we'll make it because people expect it. And I definitely want to see more action. And I think the questions we ask are all action oriented, like, or at least moving people toward action. So yeah. Should I say the questions? Cause, or people can go to defundthechurch.com and see the questions. Let's, let's make them go. They're gonna have to work yeah, for make it. Them go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then while you're there, look at the resources. Um, I've read the questions. I have them um, saved. I'm also a little partial to the black and yellow myself. Personally. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was Wiz Khalifa, you know, black and yellow, black and well, yellow. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so last question. Um, yeah. When you are trying to wrap your mind around, so you're sitting across, uh, you know, the table from someone or your kids or someone else's kids or whatever, and they're like, hey, Justin, so when you say God, what do you actually mean? What would you say to that? Um, so I, I had a moment of deconstruction where that was a question that I struggled with. I actually, I share about a four-week stint where I was preaching the Bible and I didn't even know if I believed in God or hmm. the Bible. Like, uh, which is an awkward place to be as a lead pastor. So I would encourage people not to do that. Um, but I, I had one what, of those uh, as a lead, as, <laughs> as a as a worship leader at the church as well, where I'm just, oh, this, I can sing the songs, I guess. Yeah. Why not? It, you know, what's wild is I know a lot of pastors who have had experiences like that, some of which have actually been honest about it and some of which just continue to kind of bury it. Like, and it's, it's, it's hard to be honest with it because it really is a foundational, like to have a deconstructing moment when 
everything you've constructed is how you've built your career, Mm -hmm. your relationships, all of it. It's hard. Um, But in that moment, one of the things that brought me back, I wouldn't say it simplified my faith, but I would say it made my foundation very clear. And I, I alluded to this earlier that my foundation is on Jesus. And so Hebrews 1, 3 says, Jesus is the exact representation of God, the pure radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being. And for me, I think that's interesting because it's, it's the author of Hebrews. It's at the very beginning. He's writing to Jewish people who have an understanding of God from the Old Testament. And the like immediate, like the third verse is pretty much saying like, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Whatever you think you know about God, filter it through the lens of Jesus. If it does not compute, it is not the exact representation of God. Like, that's kind of how I read it. Like, when I read it that way, I was like, wow, this is, this changes all the struggles that I have with Old Testament God and New Testament God. Like, to me, I just always saw this, like, stark difference between the God of the Old Testament and and the God of Jesus. Like, I just, I didn't, they did not connect to me. And, um, and so Hebrews 1, 3 for me, like, helped me see that like God hasn't always been accurately represented in the old Testament. Like that's not to say God wasn't the God he is now in the old Testament or that God changed, you know, it's more to say like people were flawed and God was meeting them where they were. Mm. And ultimately God met us in fullness through Jesus in exact representation through Jesus. And so for me, when I think of God, I think of Jesus, I think of um, the life ministry, death, resurrection, ultimately the, the, the reality of the story of who Jesus was, um, when I think of God. And so that's, to me, is the exact representation of God, the, the, you know, yeah, that, that, so that's kind of a simple answer. I don't know if that's what you're getting after. You can feel free to ask follow-ups, but no, whatever the answer is, is is the answer. (laughs) It's, It's not, it's your answer. So, um, yeah, no, I like, um, so where do people go? So defund the church is the website for that. But what, so point people in the right places. Where do you want them to go? Sure. Yeah. If you, so, okay. If you want to friend me on Facebook, obviously I'll friend anybody. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you can, you can find me, uh, Justin Douglas on Facebook, uh, on Instagram. I'm at pastor Justin Douglas, uh, defundthechurch.com pastorjustindouglas.com. I have a podcast called beyond boundaries. I also did a Ted talk called beyond boundaries. Uh, mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess those are the main places. The church that I pastor is called the Belong Collective. We are currently, we, we had our first physical gathering, but we're, we're still doing digital gatherings. So if you want to participate from wherever you are, you can participate in that. And I, I want to also be clear just because I think this is really important. I'm a pastor of a church and I'm, I'm kind of spearheading a defund the church, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not going to call it a movement because I don't think it's that, you know, much of a deal right now, but, but ultimately like the first question I always get is like, well, we should start with your salary. And I'm like, you should, if, if, if our church is not having conversations about issues of justice, then yeah, start with my salary. Oh, yes. I hundred yeah. percent agree. Like by all means, start with me. Um, and I would say we've as a board asked these questions as well. And I'll say like our board is three women and three men and no people of color are represented on our board. And we're working through that. Like we're having that conversation and we're very open about that conversation with our community. And so like, I, I, I just want to say like, this isn't like some high horse that I'm on as if we're doing things perfect. We've got a lot to unlearn at the Belong Collective too. Like we've got a lot to work on in matters of justice. I don't think this is like, Hey, everyone, here's the finish line. Just get to here and then you're done. Like this should be an ongoing conversation where we're 
uh, amplifying and listening to black voices and people of color and, and ultimately trying to hear their experience and have a sensitivity to that to where we can enfold people into our communities better. And, and ultimately, maybe the church would re- reflect the diversity of the kingdom. Yeah. Like how beautiful would that be? And so that's my heart and all of it. But ultimately, if you want to connect with me or connect with the ministries that I'm a part of, uh, I, w- I would love for that. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for your time tonight, Justin. I'm aware of how late it is. Uh, yeah, most people listen, I think, probably on their lunch break or whatever. So they don't know how late <laughs> it is. But, but yeah, thank, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. We have a lot to do, don't we? More so than I think that we realize. And it's going to come for the decades and the decades and the decades to come after that. We have dug ourselves in a hole that I think we can't even see light at the top of the tunnel anymore. But collectively, I believe that we can work together towards change. I think the work that people like Justin Douglas are doing here and many, many others is worth it needed and when you engage with it the anger that it sometimes comes up with when you talk about defunding the church i think that anger should be recognized dealt with and used as energy to affect real change i know that's what i want to do so this is a part of the episode that you know i'm going to ask you to rate and review the show and that type of stuff and i know that you're going to be tempted to like fast forward 30 seconds because you really just want to get to the music at the end of the episode but here's the thing I'm not going to make it 30 seconds, so you're never really going to know where that button is. And so you're going to go forward too far, then you're going to come backwards too far, you know, because you rewind it another 15 or 20 seconds. And then you're just going to miss the whole thing, get frustrated and throw your phone. And nobody wants that. So I think what you should do instead is join people like Matthew Boyle, who has become the newest patron supporter of the show. Go to the show notes, go to the website, go to a lot of different places, but you can find ways to support the show either financially through Patreon, which is definitely the preferred way. Um, But outside of that, you can share, rate and review, et cetera, et cetera. And so thank you to every single one of you who does that. With that, now let's do the music. With a big thank you to Heath McNeese for your music again in this episode. Can't wait to talk to you all again. Be blessed, everybody. You could be a good man or a great woman And still find yourself in the land of not lost With your hand of God saying you resist the same temptations Cain couldn't And if I learned anything at all I learned about the hate mankind has beating in its heart The things will fall apart And when they do, very few have found reasoning with God I know you never loved me I also realized you never hated me either but the numbness was worse because it started in your heart and it spread all the way to your fingers. The same fingers that were touching my face every evening. You swore that everything was okay, I believed it. And I don't even think you aimed to deceive me. You just hadn't figured out yet which way to be leaving. It's scattered thoughts from the edge of the world where your heart, mind, and soul will eventually blur when you spill your guts till it physically hurts. And the result is a song that'll never be heard.
So I call this a message in a bottle. Mistakes in my present are a lesson for tomorrow. And if it ever reaches land, I hope the people understand. Welcome to the point of no return. We've all been waiting.